Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Well, hey, Bartlett. Hey, Thanks Tara. for coming down it's to talk to us today. Always great to come down here. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about a lot of things today, but why don't we start by talking about the beginning, which sounds like it's Otter Creek Farm. Right. So when my wife and I decided to move back from Hawaii, which is a whole other backstory we can get into one day, um, she was working with Midwestern Bioag, which is a biological farming company. And her father ran and, and her brother ran Otter Creek Organic Farm, which is this great little organic dairy outside of Spring Green. And at the time, organic milk prices were starting to fluctuate. They're starting to follow the commodity cycles. And it was problematic because not only were they organic, but biological, both of which cost more in inputs. And so if you don't have a consistent output, it's, it's a little scary to run. So we talked through different things we could do. And I was, you know, trained as a lawyer and I was studying for the bar and they saw me as just a resource, I guess, family resource. And pretty soon it was like, well, do you want to help us get a project going? And I was like, well, sure. It seems like fun, uh, which it was. And so we looked at what we had and we have this incredible dairy that makes incredible milk, and we had a cheesemaker buying it, and he said he was buying the milk because it made the best cheese. We're like, well, I guess that makes sense. You know, that's, that's, and we like the cheese and it seemed to make good sense. But the, the interesting thing was we had hit a point with our production of the dairy, we could actually make a commercial vat of cheese. So a lot of high-end cheesemakers out there who make 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 50 pounds, whatever, it doesn't matter, but they're doing this very intense handcrafted thing. And that's great if you do all that work yourself. But when you have 20,000 hundredweight, no, I guess it'd be 2,000 hundredweight a month, that's the equivalent of, okay, so. How yeah. many cows is that? that was Just to give at, our listeners some idea of scale. Yeah, so we had 200, roughly 200 milking. It was pushing up to 225. Okay. Um, and how much acreage? That was on 650 acres. Okay. And Thanks. then they had they rented a few others. And mm-hmm. it was it was a very nice self-contained dairy where they were, you know, they had full access to grazing uh, around the milking parlor. So we rotationally graze them, mixing it with the crops. Uh, it's just it was a a great size for a dairy, but it was also farming in the middle, which is a, a catchphrase now. Like you're not a little CSA or a little doing like the super high-end cheese where all your money comes through that. And you're not playing the commodity thing where you have very low labor costs and you just do thousands and thousands of acres or thousands and thousands of cows, where it becomes a factory. Right. Now, this farm is um, kind of a showcase for biological farming. So before we go into your cheese, I just want to cover a bit about the farm. So Gary Zimmer, my father-in-law, is known as kind of the founder of something called biological farming. And it goes back, the way I like to describe it is it goes back to the 30s and 40s and looks at what the state-of-the-art farming was then. And what that was was pre-commercial nitrogen, pre-industrialization of the farm. It was pre-World War II uh, concepts where more, better, faster, stronger, more machines, let's go get them. And at, 
coming out of the World War II, you know, my sense is the farming industry and the universities and all got really attracted to chemical farming. Chemicals, period, but chemical farming. And because it was just incredible, you throw look, this chemical nitrogen down and look what happens. And like any other system, it took root and took off and a lot of things were forgotten and ignored until it got to a point where you, it wasn't working anymore. You had higher pests, pest pressures, you had more and more chemicals being dumped on, more herbicides, more pesticides, and the rise of the organics came out of it. But the organics was, again, in my opinion, largely just a rejection of the chemical farming without really having an alternative other than you know, they call it do nothing organics in some places. Right. I call it organic by default. Right. Yeah. And, and there is a lot by of By design. Right. Yeah. And now there's supposed to be things where you build your soil in organics and you do some positive things, but it's very undefined. It's very mm-hmm. diffuse. So, you know, the example I give is you could literally take a parking lot and till it up and let it sit for three years doing nothing to it and then farm it and say, hey, it's organic. Right. Now, you may get almost nothing out of it, but it's, you know, supposedly it's a super healthy, vibrant thing. All of a sudden, it's like, well... Just because it's out there for three years. That's right. And again, so it's that anti-chemical concept. So what Gary did is he went back and he was a teacher and teacher of ag and studying and asking lots of questions coming out of the 60s was that kind of guy and learned about uh, Albrecht... Uh, the Albrecht papers or famous scientist who was studying alternatives, what makes plants grow in a non-pure chemical way. Uh, and uh, boy, I can't remember the name of the other guy. There's another, anyway, as Gary's other role model uh, would bring people to the farm and teach them about soil building. And it was mm-hmm. all through this concept of working with the soil, like the soil is the key to your farm. And modern, when I talk to other farmers and other folks, they really see it and have been trained that it's a medium. It could be sand, it could be clay, it could be hydroponics. It's just an input-output, and you balance it, and you're done. And yet, that's very much on a pure chemical, measurable basis, and there's no real sense of the life and the conversion that goes on within that incredible network underneath. Now, now, we're getting more used to it with the discussion of the microbiome and what's going on with their guts and all that. Well, Gary's talked about the soil being the gut of the farm for decades. And so that's a long way of getting to. He had these concepts, and in order to prove it to people that it wasn't just some ex-hippie out there, you know, flapping his gums, he started a farm. And he started from scratch. I mean, it's people don't understand we did not inherit the farm. He bought that he farm? He bought that farm wow. from scratch. And, I mean, it's almost unheard of now. Right. But they start with, you know, the one little uh, showcase Farmstead. farm that was a it was just for cropping with a few cows. And then the dairy across the way came up, so they bought that. And that was when Nicholas was 16 and said, I'm going to be a farmer. And you can mm-hmm. send me to school all you want, but I'm going to be a farmer. So they bought it with Nicholas. And they grew So they, they buy it with Nicholas when he was... 16. 16? 16. I didn't realize Oh, that. yeah. At 14, he'd started farming, like, you know, with the tractors and all right. that. But it was always like, yeah, okay, but we're assuming you're going to But gonna he'll get over this. Right. Yes. <laughs> and it was, it's in his blood. He is his grandfather's heir. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It really is. And he's, he is everything you want in a farmer. Right. And he also right. fits the stereotype he doesn't like talking to people. So. Right. And that right. was my joke. So when they brought me to the farm, I'm like, I'm not afraid of people. I'll right. talk all day. And talking so is good. I'll take your concepts and 
talk on behalf of Nicholas about what he's doing because mm-hmm. there's some amazing things going on. So yeah, they they started from I, I think it was a you know 200 acre you know basic little farm at what used to be a full size farm back in the day. Probably 100 200 acres. Yeah, 160. 160 yeah, probably a section. Yep. And so they started cropping, then they got into the dairy, and then, I mean, they started with, you know, 40 cows, and then they upgraded the parlor, and then they just, you know, they grew naturally. They didn't buy. Were they organic from the start? They went organic. Well, it took, you know, three to four years to convert. Right, right. But from the biological farming, because the focus is so much on the health of the soil, they find that even if you're farming non-organic, um, you know, meaning using whatever chemicals you want, your chemical inputs are greatly reduced. Your, your long-term costs are reduced, although up, up front may be more. Your long-term costs are generally reduced because you're easing a lot of the pressures that you're trying to solve with the chemicals. Gary told me that um, when he started it, most when he started Midwest Biowag, now he's off of his farm, he created a business around this. When he first started, it was for the benefit of organic agriculture, and now some of their biggest customers are conventional. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, the sweet spot for them uh, was the small family dairy. And the, w- the small family dairies at the time who were uh, able to get any sort of premium were the ones going organic. So they were tremendous support for that. They solved a lot of those problems. They still have uh, very large organic operations as, as that industry organics has scaled up. Mm. Now they're having trouble finding the expertise because you either get very small people who don't understand very large-scale farming or you get the large-scale farming guys who are like, well, what do I dump? You know, what, where, where's the chemical I put down? And they, they're, they're having this conflict. It's a, it's a true cultural issue. Oh, I bet it is. So Midwestern Bioag stepping into that saying, we understand both sides. But yes, the, the basic thing, the early money and the easy money, and you see with a lot of organics, was you can get the higher value use the that pays for all the biological stuff you're trying to do. And then in three, five years, when everything's really humming along, your input cost drops dramatically, and yet you're still having your premium. And so with a lot of the larger landowners, what, what started happening is they would come and use biological methods, and it would reduce their input costs. Uh, on the chemicals, a uh, big one with uh, potatoes. Uh, when they would start using these processes, they found that they didn't have to put on these tons and tons of fungicide, which is nasty stuff. Nasty stuff. Nasty yes, stuff. And worst. so every time they would cut one rotation out, or they would get a 2% greater yield, even of just non-scabby potatoes, they would have this huge windfall of profit. Right. And so they found this funny niche of they are kind of the transition for folks are kind of the farming in the middle mm-hmm. at whatever scale of like, look, we're trying to take the best tools. You can go one direction or another. You can be all organic. You can be commodity. We That's an agnostic view on our point. Mm-hmm. Just take care of your soils. Mm-hmm. And that was the foundation of the dairy really came out of that. So when Gary started consulting, uh, when he was first starting his biological concepts and all this idea of the gut, he was literally dealing with cows with bad guts. And he'd go in, and they're just, I don't know, if, uh, for those who are listening bloated, who are not in the dairy. right? They're yeah, bloated. They're bloated, and, and they have gas, and they're yeah. miserable, oh, yes. Oh, and you can tell the health of a dairy just by going and looking at their poop. I mean, it's, and I don't want to say manure. I mean, it's just, it's coming out. It's poop, yeah. It's <laughs> just coming out. And it takes, for us city guys, it takes a little while to get used to it, and then all of a sudden you, become to, you come to appreciate what it is. And it's incredible, the diagnostic 
instant. So he's going and dealing with the, all these sick cows and people are, it's production issues and high cell counts, which is a measure of the, the health of the cow through the milk. And the guys are really frustrated. They said, well, I'm, fo- I'm following all the university recommendations or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And he's like, well, something's wrong with your feed then. Are you testing your feed? Well, no, there's, you don't test feed. It's like, well, and again, this is 40 years ago when no right. one tested feed. So it was just this assumption. Your alfalfa has a certain quality. Your hay has a certain quality. And they would mix it based on just averages. So he started going, and that's where he was really saying, we've got to improve your soils. So I, by improving the soils, you improve the forage quality, the quality of the feed that you're growing, which improves the health of the cows. So you're not putting stuff in like, you know, our vitamins you take that you generally excrete out. Um, you know, people think, oh, I'm not getting a vitamin C, so I take all this extra vitamin C, and then it just, you pee it out. Oh, okay, well, that was not very useful. Well, they're trying the same thing with cows, and it just, it wasn't working. So he said, you got to get the food better. So that was the start of the biological farming concept. All these farmers suddenly have healthier cows. Their vet costs go down. They have higher production. The cheesemakers liked it because the cell counts were lower, so they can make better cheese. There are all these things going on. And from that, Gary got into the concept, just purely on a conceptual basis, of if that is true for the cows, what are we doing to ourselves? Right. And it's sounding so much like what we talk about in holistic medicine for people these days, right? Absolutely. Some of the conversations I have with the naturopaths and the, the dietitians and all, it's, it's not just what are you eating, but where are you getting it, what you're sourcing. Right. And, and that's part of the local food movement that is largely been pushed aside, I think, but uh, in favor of economics and your other you know, community bases for local food. But if you can get food fresher or know where that food came from uh, and how it was raised you have much stronger uh, nutritional tie or much stronger nutrition coming from it. The vegetables, the even a commodity-raised vegetable, um, if you can get to it quickly, your nutrient quality is much higher than something ships all the way across the country. It is an interesting thing about local, and that's probably a whole nother inter- a whole nother talk we can have because um, around here you can have some of the most chemical-laden food is local, right? We have very chemical-laden food produced in Dane County. And so I think there is a lot of thinking we need to do about what we actually mean by local and what the value of it is. But anyway, getting back to to Carter Creek. Right. So, and and we'll we'll footnote that because I want to come back to that because that was one of the big decisions we had to make uh, in the marketing. So again, we were at a scale of it's the equivalent of twenty to 30,000 pounds of cheese a month. Mm-hmm. So not a small amount. Right. Um, to give a, a reference, they just came out with the annual report for Willie Street. Willie mm-hmm. Street was bragging about how much local milk they sold. Not, you know, organic all the, down, all the way down. And I believe they include Organic Valley in their idea of what their local milk is. So I did the math on that. That would be two and a half months of production. At, at Otter, Otter Creek. Creek, yeah. And that's Willie Street with two, right. with three stores and right. just how much they... It's like, it just gives you a sense of scale. Yeah, I think people don't have a good sense of scale at all with mm-hmm. agriculture and food and mm-hmm. companies. Like, how big do you need to be to make things work? That's right. And that, and that is, for me, has always been the the real tension point in everything we do. And, and you see it in farming, back to the farming in the middle. But what is the right scale? And it's a very scary world uh, for a food producer right now uh, 
Because if you're not direct marketing, if you don't have that very direct line to the consumer where you can capture all the value along the chain, then you're fighting the guys who do this very large-scale production. And now you're trying to differentiate yourself away from your local farmer's market, but into the marketplace on something other than price, because you're going to be more expensive, yet you have to be close. It's just, it's a mess. It's a very difficult place to it's, be. Yeah, and that's, so that's, that's what we struggled you, with. Right, right, that's where you were with Otter Creek. Right? So, right, so here we are. We're dealing with these coming cyclical pricing, trying to figure out how do you make a farm go when you don't know what you're going to get paid for it. And I dare you, you don't have, you can't just stop working one day. Right, the cows. The cows produce. Keep going. And our cheesemaker had lost a big, so our our cheesemaker was bringing in uh, all of our milk. And one thing he liked about it is that he had one truck that could pick up from us. So his, his costs were lower on picking up. And he could blend our organic milk that had extremely low cell count with marginal organic producers who had much higher cell counts, but he could blend it and get to the level he wanted. So I had heard the idea was about 400, mm-hmm. um, a 400 cell count, and we were usually in the 200s, sometimes mm-hmm. in the 100s in winter. And we were, it was pretty exceptional, uh, where other producers would be at 600, 700. If it's over 1,000, it starts, I think, really damaging what you can do with it. But So he could blend our milk with others and still get a very high-quality product. And he was known for an extremely high-quality product. Um, so we, we had that going, but when he lost his big contract, all of a sudden he's struggling. And, and I mean, nothing against him. It's like, what can you do? You lose a third of your business in organic, and that's your output. Right, and his his plant is also probably one of the smallest in the state as a plant, not as a farmstead operation. So, again, for our viewers, right. you know, they... they it, we're not talking about a giant factory here. This is right. a local factory that's small in a very rural area that, right. uh, yeah. They still have, I mean, the cheesemaker, and one guy had been there 60 years. I mean, they had the guy standing there mixing the vats, and they had, yeah, you know, and they they had some paddles. Their che- but it their was, cheese by hand, yeah. It was very much a manual operation, and so he was able to do a lot of custom work for people, which was great, but when you have, and I, I went through this you know, myself, when you have a very, even if they're not a majority of your business, but it's just a throughput issue, it's fantastic because it gives you a drum beat and a baseline. That goes away. Now, he doesn't have the option as a cheesemaker with contracts with farmers to say, oh, I don't need your milk today. It's, I mean, federal milk, law, yes. It, it is out. I mean, the, federal... that milk is, you know, comes out of the cow, it goes in the bulk tank, it goes to whatever, whoever is taking it, no questions asked, and then a check comes every two weeks to the farm. I mean, there is, there is no stopping that fire hose. Mm-hmm. So depending on the contracts you have, either they pay you what they could sell it for or they have a, a set price. Now, obviously, the farm likes a set price, so you can bank ahead. Um, but that's a lot of risk on that poor cheesemaker, which is what we ran into. So we are without a contract at the time. Now, he was still taking all the milk, which was... I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't know what you would do if all the they You make a lot of cheddar cheese. So well, that's, that's what we did. That's yeah. what he was doing, that's what, right? That's what a plant does. But he, what he did is he shifted for a while. He's having to shift into commodity pricing. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden you go from, I think it was $28 per hundredweight, uh, which we can do the math later, but as a, as a retailer, as a, as a consumer, is a shockingly low amount of money for organic milk. 
until you figure out all the things that has to happen to get it to you as the consumer. Mm-hmm. But the usual the, thing. But yes. it dropped from that to I think twelve dollars a hundred weight. So it was less than half. All of a sudden, these checks start coming through, and with threatening of much more. Right, and that's, and that's not covering your cost of production. And no, for I think an organic our dairy. I think our cost of production was like seventeen or eighteen to break even. Yeah, and yours was probably the lowest of any organic producer. So yeah. the best milk, lowest cost. Right. Really interesting. Yeah, it was, and again, that comes out of that core of the the farm that had gotten going. Um, so that's where we're faced with. And, and Gary had had this idea of working with uh, selling fluid milk to the retail markets, uh, which we do have such exceptional milk. And I think Blue Marble had been going, was struggling with mm-hmm. some other things. And he really liked that idea. And I quickly was able to go through the numbers and go, this doesn't make sense. I mean, for me, it wasn't just, can you get out? Yes, we, I'm sure we could sell some milk, but we can't sell it all. So you're only selling a piece of your milk. And you got to sell it right away. And you got to sell it. That's the one that terrified me is that we have this milk being produced. And even if we just said we're going to take 10% of our milk and sell it this way, you've got all the infrastructure to put together, the bottling and the sterilization, the HACCP plans and all that. Who's going to run it? And thinking of who was on the farm, it's not really going to happen. And then it sits. And if it sits more than a couple of days, you're throwing it away. Mm-hmm. And that is, for me, it was this terrifying thing. Like the fire hose going to the cheese factory. I'm now like, it's your fire it's hose. It's your fire hose. Yeah. And it's like, and, and the stress, just even thinking about that, really, I was like, we, we can't do that. That's just, that's not really viable. So we talked about cheddar cheese. And we are blessed. One of the, uh, in the corner where we are, which is County C and Highway 130, which runs between uh, Highland and Dodgeville, kind of in that area. It's, this was known as uh, the cheddar cheese area. Uh, Uplands Cheese is at one end of that highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we were was this corner, Bigelow Cheese, who used to be the go-to cheese guy. He used to have a little retail shop. People would travel for hours and hours to get there. And he was the one who would win all the awards every year. And uh, Florian Frank. And he's, you know, he's still there. He's in his 80s or 90s now. And so we're talking to him about how did you win the awards? And we think we were going to get this big secret. He said, well, I would use the milk from this valley. And specifically, I'd move it and use the milk from these three farms, which are the three farms that now make up Otter Creek. I was like, yes. And he said, and I would use the spring milk. Okay. And your recipe, it's like, no, no, just off-the-shelf enzymes and off-the-shelf recipe. It's just cheddar. But I would use that milk from this area at that time, and that would make the best milk. We went, so the milk you're using by time will affect the quality of the cheese, not just in a general, but in like... In the flavors. In the flavors. And he's like, absolutely. And we went, oh. So we talked to Bob Wills, who's the cheesemaker, and... I said, is this possible? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Now, once you pasteurize it and you, and you cook it so over you know, 180 for an hour, whatever it is they have to do to completely sterilize the milk, you break all those flavor chains. And that's why craft and anything else, it always tastes the same. And that's what consumers are kind of used to. But if we do it by sections, we bring in, again, we can bring in one commercial vat at a time through the trucks and we do it in spring, you're going to have a very different experience than you do each of the other seasons if you keep it non-pasteurized. 
And now, I don't want to get into raw milk versus pasteurized versus what we call non-pasteurized, which was heat-treated versus... It's this whole complicated thing. But the the long, very long, highly politically charged uh, conversation is when you heat-treat it, you're kind of taking care of the first-level pathogens. And if the milk is clean, you're going to have a very good product, and it gets tested later. Right. And you have to, under under the regulatory environment, you have to hold it for at least two months. That's right. You have a 60-day hold, and you have to call it raw milk, right. uh, which is where some of the politics come in. But right. it was a nice balancing but you, with point. With cheddar, you would maker. be doing that anyway. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and we found it really took about uh, seven months in the, on the earliest, but really about 10 months to really blossom all these flavors. So what we would do is we'd go in, we'd have Bob make us this non-pasteurized cheddar, and we would age it. And not the high-level affinage, it's cheddar, so you can keep it in the 40-pound block in a cooler at, we found 36 degrees was the best, and you hold it, and these flavors would develop. So we started uh, producing a cheese, we called it Otter Creek Organic Farm, not surprisingly, um, and we're really hitting the organic nature, but beyond that, and, and all the biological farming and all the story that goes into it. But what was really interesting with both the marketing and the concepts and what people were reacting to was that if they buy a cheese in May, it's not going to be the same as what they buy in the fall. And so we labeled them spring, summer, fall, winter. And I, I obviously, I, I did this a million times. I was out there marketing, telling the story. I you know, interacted with thousands of people. What we found was in the spring, you had a very light, uh, sweet flavor in the cheese. And if you think about spring, uh, and, and when I say spring cheese, I mean made in spring, mm-hmm. even though it may not be released till December right. or January. Right. Uh, if you think about spring, anybody who mows their grass knows this. The first flush is this very lime green, beautiful green, but very soft grass. Everything is coming up, and it's just you know, young it's vibrancy and, and young. And so it's this young, fresh stuff, but it, it doesn't have much density to it. And when you release the cows from pasture, they've been cooped up all winter. They go out and pasture. They're almost skipping. I mean, it's hilarious seeing 2,000-pound animals jumping around, mm-hmm. but they're so excited to be back there. But it, they've had their winter fat. So biologically, what they're doing is they're shedding their fat because they have to get ready for summer. Mm-hmm. It's the time, natural time for reproduction. So a lot more calves being born and their cycles are set up for reproduction. So that is this huge rush of nutrient going, being generated for the, the calves. And the, the lighter grasses really help, and the exercise, really help them shed their pounds. I mean, it sounds like a diet. You know, you're talking to someone. But, I mean, that's, that's right. kind of what happened. Right, it's boot camp. It's yes. boot camp, but it's natural. I mean, it's what happened in right, nature. It's right. incredible. But all this created this sweet flavor, and a lot of people just loved it. You had this first hint of the grasses coming in. You go into the summertime, and now, again, if you think what's going on environmentally, it's hot. And the cows are almost entirely on forage. So we still have some, some grain that will feed them uh, through our mixes. And again, with the biological system, we maintain a certain minimum of nutrition. But they're almost all their diets on the, out there on the, um, uh, on the pasture. So there's a lot more grass, but... In feeding the calves, again, think of the purpose of milk. It takes it's it's to feed the calf most of their water, and so there has to be a lot of water getting through to the calf. So it's a thinner milk, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if the standard for making a cheddar is ten pounds of milk equals one pound of cheddar, in the summertime it might be eleven to one. So when you distill it down, not only are they on more grass, 
but it takes more milk. To make to, a pound of cheese. So there's greater distillation. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's like doing a reduction of a sauce, you know, mm-hmm. there's greater concentration. So you get a very intense grass flavor and a lighter cream level, level at the base. Where the spring was pretty much neutral, all of a sudden we've got a lot of grass coming through. Now you get to the fall, and now, again, anybody out there mowing their lawn or having to do the hedges, the, the plants get thicker and woodier. Plants themselves are getting ready for winter. They're in production mode, the nuts and berries time and all this. Uh, there are a lot more lignans in the plants. And this, when the uh, animals are out there, they're getting more energy from the forages. Uh, just, uh, again, the nuts and berries concept. And they are literally putting on weight for winter because now they're gearing up. Oh, gosh, you know, weather's changing. Uh, still very much on forage. They've really adjusted to you know, the exercise and all that. And from the lignans and just the way everything's working at that time, you get a certain, I, I called it a gur. But <laughs> anybody who's had an aged cheddar, there's uh, this kind of acidic overbite that comes down. And without having to age it a very long time, you got a lot more of that gur coming through uh, in the fall, che- fall cheeses. And that's what the cheesemakers, when we test Repeat it. They're like, that's the cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, the sweetness, the chefs liked. The sweetness of spring, the, the cheesemakers themselves and the high, high-end cheese affection. They like that grr and that extra flavor. What, when, and when you come around to winter, so come December, January, or November sometimes, depending on what's going on with the, uh, the forages, there, there's nothing for them to eat outside. I mean, they can paw around and starve but they pretty we're in much Wisconsin we're in Wisconsin all, right? that's right yes. so they pretty much they come into the barns and they settle in and again we have freestanding barns they still move around but they're mostly on the stored feed and so this means the flavor of that fresh grass disappears but what you get instead is this super creamy uh, cheddar that comes out very mellow very just buttery almost and a lot of my consumers when I'm out there sampling all these cheeses and I could have all four out at once and taste them if they'd never had an artisan cheese before, they'd gravitate towards the winter. Mm-hmm. So I called it my crossover drug. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, if you give them a taste of that and they start seeing what mm-hmm. cheese can be, but more, they're like, wow. And then that introduces them into spring. The priest, they go, oh, I'm going to try a little of that spring. It's, it's a little sweet. Isn't that cool? And then they build their way through and they start learning the palate. Right. So we have this thing, and it's cool. And the consumers went crazy for it. Um, we had two, well, we had, our first fundamental issue is who are we selling to? And when you're making twenty to 30,000 pounds of cheese a month, you can't, it can't sell locally. It can't be all local. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where I started learning this thing about local food. We're all into local food. Local food is a consumer-driven principle. The farmer can try to tap into farmer's markets and all, but that has, I don't want to say it has to be, depending on their scale, it's one avenue for them. But if they are a farmer through and through and not a marketer, the local food scene isn't for them. It's difficult. The sca- matching the scale is difficult. And, and the other thing I suspect is that there weren't enough artisanal consumers, even if you did leave local, mm-hmm. um, to, to make this thing, make those cheeses that were, um, how to say this, more complicated flavors would have to go to people who understood those complicated flavors. Well, I... On- on that, so what we were making was a cheddar, and I had a talk with the main buyer at Whole Foods, and who was, she was fabulous, and talking her through it, and she said, "Look, everyone comes tries to come out with a new fancy cheese, but they don't understand eighty percent of what we sell through our cheese counter is right, cheddar. Right, cheddar, right? And then they try to make all these fancy cheddars, and people may buy it once, 
like a you know right. this flavor or yeah, that flavor yeah, or whatever. Yeah. He's like, but people buy cheddar. They want cheddar. Mm-hmm. That is what Americans want. Eat. Yeah. That's what we eat. Mm-hmm. And so she really was very supportive of the idea of the four season mm-hmm. cheddar that rotated through. We had so our first problem we had was two thousand eight hit, and Whole Foods got hammered. Right. And so she's like, I can't buy now. We need to do this slowly. I'm not buying anything. 2008 is, for those of you who aren't putting this all together, is the year the economy collapsed. So, yeah. Yeah. It was like orders were taking off and going crazy. And And then then it all fell off the cliff because nobody knew if they were going to have a business. That's right. Literally, they said, I mean, it happened to me and everybody, the phone stopped ringing. Everybody just was paralyzed. Crickets. Yeah. It was was, was a scary time. so we had other avenues. And so basically we were at this scale, like like a Whole Foods. Um, we worked with DPI, which is one of the big distributors that does cheeses. And we were trying to find that retailer in the middle who wanted to do a higher-end product but wasn't a little tiny cheese shop. I mean, there are plenty of little cheese shops that would have taken it in, but the cost of shipping one thing of cheese to them was prohibitive. Mm-hmm. And now they're having to sell it for 35 40 bucks a pound for... Right, for cheddar. Cheddar, which right. is a very good cheddar, but it's a cheddar. Right. And so, but we needed volume. We had to send volume through. And so even working with some of the, the West Coast folks who were really into our cheese and, and loved it, their problem, I mean, this sounds bizarre to me, but they couldn't deal with the seasonality themselves they wanted one skew, right? Which is I, I don't even know what it's shelf. I don't know what skew stands for. SKU. It's I a, don't. I don't either. So shelf something unit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's their, It's the standard sale. It's the right. little barcode you have on right. your cheese. Which we had barcodes, but when somebody is out of spring cheddar, they want to order more spring cheddar. Yeah, they don't want to order a different skew. Right. Yeah, and you're like, well, it. we're out. We need fall. And they're like, no, but they're ordering the spring. And it just the computer systems. So do you think you guys were just ahead of your time with that? I do. Well, I... Because I, I sort of feel yeah. like the, the food world and the retailers would be... Um, this wouldn't have been so... If you did this right now, it wouldn't be such an education process to get people to do it. I mean, the oh. skew thing is still an issue, but right. I think... I think you guys were just way ahead of your time. That's not surprising. <laughs> I think you're, no, <laughs> that, it was. We were doing most of the education. And what people knew at the time was commodity craft or craft plus, which was pretty near. And they had these. And, and, I, and I, really high end. Which I love. I mean, I love cheeses, high end cheese. Right, but, but they it didn't kind of understand your thing. No, and it doesn't. And the high end cheese thing is such a specialized field. It's like anything else. Right. And it doesn't work for a farm of our size, period, Right. right. let alone one that, you know, right. we have so many value adds already. Right. Adding that extra level is just right. brutal. Well, and the other thing that your story is about is the bio- biology of the farm and how that gets reflected in the cheese. And I think you were ahead of your time with that, too. That's right. And that's, well, that's still out there. And that's the that actually is more of the local play where someone can talk to the consumer directly and say, here's what I'm doing, and they taste the flavor. They taste the improvement in the vegetables. Um, like our C- We've tried three CSAs now, and the one we stayed with is the one who mineralizes the soils. Right. Because when they add these minerals to the soil, even though it's against, it's, it is not universally recommended, however you say that, because it's not an NPK. Mm-hmm. But there are all these other minerals, calcium and magnesium. and Selenium. I, selenium. But you can taste the flavor difference. And we've been to other equally accomplished farmers who don't mineralize, and you immediately, you're like, oh, something's missing here. I mean, you get addicted to 
tasting the minerals. It's incredible. Right. So we had that. But again, here's one of the things I learned, and and there there are a couple things I want to relate here. You know, one is finding the right scale. So we were the perfect scale for Whole Foods, and it would have been a perfect match. The problem being their economics made them hold off. And then we entered a period of time where we had the right scale, but the, we didn't have the right, right buyer. Right, didn't have the right buyer. And then we had several other retailers out there who would have been great, but were kind of tiptoeing around. And because we hadn't been proven at any one store chain, they were nervous to get in. So that was frustrating. And that's just, it's a marketing thing. But at the same time, when you're having to hold a year's worth of inventory, which in our case was, what, $150,000 Worth of cheese that you've paid for, right? That you are sitting on, and you and have paying no cash every flow. Month. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's brutal. Um, so that's that's part of the thing is finding the right scale and the right partners with things. And again, I was doing a lot of education with these retailers of how they could partner, but that's not how they think. No, and the other the other thing for companies is educating a market is the most expensive thing to have to do for a business. That's right. Yeah. Well, and that gets to your question about the biological farming. We have this intense story and this intense flavor and this whole thing behind it. And you have a three-by-three label to put your information on. Right, not a lot of room. And that gives you a picture and it gives you a barcode and it gives you a nutritional. I mean, the back is filled with legal required stuff. Right, you don't have room. We got it down to a two-sentence description of everything we do plus the organic bug. Right. And that's if someone reads it. And I would, I, I'd spent a lot of time early on training the cheese, cheesemongers and I'd walk them through all the cheeses and we'd have these story and everything we were, I mean, sometimes over an hour and a half. And with, I remember this one in particular, great store chain, very intense cheesemongers, very involved uh, up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Lunds and Byerly's folks, great people and really intense about what they're doing. Everybody's passionate. They went crazy for the cheeses and I went to a demo and I can't remember if it was the manager or one of their, you know, sub-managers or, you know, people working the case came and said, oh, yeah, here's a nice organic cheese out of Wisconsin. Right. It was like... Where, what happened to the rest of the story? But they've yeah. got 100 cheeses in yeah, there, in case each with a story. And, and consumers are, are flying through a grocery store, right? They're not lingering over the cheese counter. Most of them aren't. That's right. So that's, that was one of the real lessons I had is you have to find the one or two things that sets you apart and is clear. Now, we, we were very successful. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, the cheese was very successful. Um, we stopped the project when we were able to stabilize the milk price through contracts because mm-hmm. of our size um, and let it kind of run its course. But the differentiation of the seasons, the packaging, we, which was very a, a color symbol-based packaging mm-hmm. that really cut through a lot of the chatter uh, it was almost uh, Japanese iconography. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a really beautiful little concept we worked up. Really was very successful, but we never quite found the perfect partner for it. And had we found, had 2008 not happened, had one of these other uh, mid-tier uh, grocery chains, by which I mean 50 to 100 stores mid-tier, right. uh, that would probably be a project still out there going. Right. Uh, but and it would have been another way to stabilize the farm income. Right. And I bet that's what I'm saying, that you guys were ahead of your time, because I think now there's so much more um, 
there's so many more options for mm-hmm. organic products now in the retail space. And the big issue for for the retailers is they can't find people who have scale. So, right. yeah, it, it's kind of the the time has come. Yeah, but so, all but all of this led me to the, the concept um, that the way the market out there works and all the marketing and the concepts in this country about food is that food is a fungible commodity. And I always tell people fungible is one of my favorite words. I learned it in law school, so don't feel bad if you've never heard it. Fungible is a widget. One thing is equally as good as the next. Dollar bills, literal dollar bills are, are fungible. It doesn't matter if it looks nasty and ratted up, up yes, or it's a brand it's... new crisp one. It has the exact same value. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the business school widgets out there, it doesn't matter what it is. They're the identical. And so obviously more for less is a good thing. And they have made food in this country fungible because of this industrialized process. When you go to McDonald's or Burger King or any of those that are designed around this model, you expect the exact same experience every time. And just think about that. I mean, how incredible that system is that whether you're in Florida in July or northern Wisconsin in December, when you go get your Big Mac, it's going to taste exactly the same. Right. And the crazy thing is in doing this, we've taken the craft out of making food and we're losing the skills and knowledge around doing something different. So we're going to talk about meat later when we talk about your foray into meat. Um, and I know it's an issue with butchers and meat cutting. It's it's now an issue with cheese making. People don't know how to work with milk that's different. They are so used to it, the cheesemakers are so used to it being standardized right. that they don't know how to work with it. So even when we decide as consumers that we like all this diversity in our food and we really like biologically resilient and robust food, then the next problem becomes having the system and the people who are capable of doing something with it. Absolutely. That's the, there's a fundamental thing, again, just like the local food thing is a consumer driven quality food has to be, it's not just consumer driven, it has to be very activist consumer driven. And it's hard. So coming here today, I desperately needed my coffee. And right on the corner is a dominant national, well-known coffee coffee chain. And you saw people zipping in and out. And for those who are, it's cold here right now. So I I was eager to get inside. It's below zero, yes. But I went the extra two steps into the wind to a local coffee shop that I know has local local roasting and all that for my coffee. And that was a painful two blocks, I'll give you. But, um, and, and, the difference is when you go to those local shops, you have to be willing to take the risk. You may get a bad cup of coffee once in a while mm-hmm. or a mediocre cup of coffee where when you go to the national, you know what you're going to get. And it's going to be the same the whole time. So you sacrifice a little bit of quality for a consistency. And that's what we've been trained is a great thing. Right. At least I can get a good cup of coffee. I don't care if it's great. At least it's good and I don't have to worry about it versus the risk of dropping your $3 for something that may not be good, but may be great. And you see that all of the foods that are out there, how many of them are, have become mediocre, but you know they're always going to be the same. Oh, you can always add hot sauce on top or right. whatever. It's right. just we have made food fungible. And the, the classic example, and people overstate this all the time, but is the tomato, right? So 
first of all, we're in the middle of winter in Wisconsin. We have no business eating a tomato, period, right now. It's not in our environment. But we have recipes that call for tomato, so we go to the grocery store and look, there's this thing that looks like a tomato. But you put that tomato up against one you bought from the farmer's market or grew in your own garden in the summer, not that you can, but you know, if you were to put them side by side, they wouldn't look the same and they certainly wouldn't, don't taste anything remotely the same. And yet we call them the same. It's a tomato. It's this like idea that all tomatoes should be the same. Mm-hmm. Now you take that one step further and say, even in summer, farmer A and farmer B, they could grow the identical tomato, but it's probably going to taste differently depending on how they've done their soils, how they've cared for it, how quickly it got to you, what the temperature is, how the ripeness and all that. But we don't think of things that way. Right. We want everything the same. So if for those of us who want to think differently about this, um, where would we go? What would be a good resource if you just wanted to start in your garden doing better care of your soil, learning more about biological farming? Where should people go? There's a book um, Gary wrote called The Biological Farmer. Uh, there's a second one, Advancing Biological Farming, and they just came out with a a new version of the biological farming. My wife's been writing uh, the books with them the last couple years. That, that's a easy way to learn the, the system, but no, those these are agriculture. Right. I mean, this, they, is these are about in, ag- this is pretty intense for the, your average person. The, the problem as a gardener is just the scale. Again, scale is so different. And you can go to a local garden store, and they'll sell you all kinds of stuff for all kinds of money. Right. The, the most basic things is look at your soil and does it crumble? Gary calls it chocolate cake. And it's probably not. No one has chocolate cake soil unless they inherited a nice garden. And one of the easiest things to do is in fall, plant a cover crop. Mm-hmm. You can buy rye seed. You can buy different seeds that are designed not to survive the winter. I mean, they, they start growing up and they get two or three inches tall. And then winter comes, they die. But it, there's all this biological material that's created, bugs eating it and the, mm-hmm. the roots and all. And then come spring, you'll see some start to sprout up, but you hoe it down. And now you have this burst of decaying greens that is a nitrogen source for your soil. Um, obviously, avoid all the, the harsh chemicals because um, every time you do that, you're killing the life in the soil, mm-hmm. which is what really transitions the mineral, the, the minerals and the soil uh, building blocks into something that gets taken up by the plants. If you put nitrogen itself into the soil, uh, it's not going directly into the plant. There are all these mechanisms and Mm -hmm. things. So you're having to digest things, and that's done with the microbiome of the soil. And so you want to do things to really enhance the health of your soil. Don't worry about bugs. So it's your little garden. You have a four-by-six pot that gets wiped out by whitefly one year. Till it under. You know, move on. It's, it always drives me crazy when I see people spraying their lawns and spraying their garden. It's like, really? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessary. Um, that's a good starting point. And then you just, you, you rotate through. Where you planted tomatoes this year, plant them somewhere else next year. Just always keep where you plant things different. Um, so, and that, that just increases the diversity of what's available in the soil. Mm-hmm. And every year we add, uh, and we're in a nice little suburban neighborhood, and there are very few gardens around, but every year we add a new raised bed or a new new place by the house. So we're sl- slowly turning our yard into a into farm. Into a farm, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm working it, on that in my great, house, but too. But you just it's take awesome. small bits at a time, and then mm-hmm. one of them we always turn into our compost pile. Right. So my coffee grinds, I actually save up my coffee grinds all winter long. Right. Um, all my vegetable ends and all that, you, you, th- you start throwing nothing away, 
mm-hmm. food related, unless it's a, a bone or something, and you keep this compost going. And it doesn't have to be exotic. There are some very exotic compost things mm-hmm. out there. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be. You basically just have a hole and you put stuff in and you keep putting dirt and some other leaves and you just kind of keep mixing around. So it's one of my weekend projects. It doesn't take long, but all of a sudden it's just this crumbly stuff comes out and it's amazing and you put it that is in your amazing garden. isn't it when so i open it. up this can i have garbage cans that i drilled holes into okay. yeah. and um, make compost in and all you know it's kind of like wow this is looks like dirt man how did this happen it's pretty oh. exciting it, it is amazing and that's and thank you for making this simple for people because okay. i think we get <laughs> no seriously i think right. we get like oh we can't do that you right. know and on on the industrial, uh, right. not industrial, on the larger scale farming, if you right. read the biological farmer, it can become overwhelming for right. a person in their yard. So that's super. Well, that's, again, so this is the scale issue. If you are in your garden, and again, if you have a house and you have a small garden, if you share a garden with someone uh, in, a, in a public garden space, even if you have a couple uh, planter boxes, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And whether you spend an hour a day, an hour a week, it's you have time you can put into it and do little things. If I were to give you even an acre, all of a sudden it becomes a full-time job trying to right, keep up with that thing. Right. And let alone 100 acres or 600 acres or mm-hmm. 1,200 acres. And that's where the machines start coming and trying to help you do it. But if you're, you yourself are trying to do 600 acres, you're looking for all the help you can get and trying to carefully compost little things doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So you need a system that keeps up with the scale where you are. Mm-hmm. And this is where the c- people love the chemicals because they don't have to think about it. Right. They just drive through, spray all this stuff, and then they're done. Right. And they are not directly connected to the quality of the food coming out. And they're not paid for the quality. They're paid purely on a quantity basis. Mm-hmm. And so this is, again, the, the fundamental problem we have is the scale and where we reward people for what they're growing. Right, and what and that as long as it's tied to volume, we don't care. It's, That's right. it's the fungible thing it's again. Fu- it's a fungible commodity. I mean, they they call them the commodities: pork mm-hmm. belly, corn, soybean, cotton. It one is exactly the same as the other until you get to a very high level, specialized level. Um, we'll, we'll get into the black earth meats, but think about pork belly mm-hmm. as a fungible commodity that's being bought and sold. This is a life, right. like a literal breathing life that's now like, oh, yeah, pass it along. Right. And It's for, a protein unit. It's a protein unit. And it's just, it's amazing. And you understand it. If you sit back and you think system-wide, yep, that makes sense. But when you think of it from any kind of spiritual or philosophical basis, it's pretty horrifying. Mm-hmm. And and I don't care if it's pork belly. You get down to tomatoes or anything. This is what gives us life. Mm-hmm. And people just, they're so dismissive. And so you, I see that time and again with the consumer there, it's, I don't mean to say brainwashed, but it, it, it's just what we've been trained to come to expect. And so people walk in and they look for pricing. I mean, any newspaper anywhere, you, you know, on the back page, it's some grocery store, and there'll probably be five grocery stores competing, showing all their sale prices that week. Oh, great. We've got this mm-hmm. for 29 cents. Isn't that amazing? And it's, it's why, why would you ever choose right. something over the cheapest price, something that is life-giving mm-hmm. as the cheapest price possible? Whether it's, I use, often use music. If you have, um, was it 21 Pilots is a popular band. I see I'm getting old now. I don't know the brand. Is 21 Pilots? Is that, a, you don't, okay. We'll call it 21 Pilots. I think that's who they are. Coming in, great band, a lot of people following them. And they're saying, and, you know, say it's 60 bucks a ticket. 
Okay, so you can spend 60 bucks to go to the ticket, but there's 22 pilots over there, and that's only $10, and it's a knockoff band. Why don't we just go over there and hear them? Right, and you wouldn't like, do what? it. No, you want to see the real guy. It's genuine, and the energy, it's like, yeah, but it's same basic thing, and it's just cheaper. Isn't that better? And people kind of understand it on music, but yeah. for food, which actually right. gives us life, people get lost. So what's interesting to me is that this whole conversation about biological farming has led us to a conversation about the spiritual life of food. Well, what biological farming does, and I think it's what organic was supposed to do, but got a little lost and industrialized that way, but it's supposed to recognize the tie between the rocks and minerals that, other than salt, we cannot digest and mean nothing to us, and life. Mm -hmm. What makes us healthy? What makes us tick? And although it's kept largely in the large-scale agricultural world, and like I said, specifically over the health of the cows, the concept really transcends what is life, life on this planet. Mm -hmm. And it's treating the whole thing as a system. It's agro agroecology in, in its truest form. Mm -hmm. And so it's not only the diversity of life in the soil, but what's around it. Uh, you know, just basic conservation methods improve the availability of beneficial organisms on the, so on the soil and the crops so you don't need as many chemical countermeasures. You know, the, when they found out when you could actually invite ladybugs into your fields by growing a certain few things, now you had a lot, a lot fewer aphids around. Right. Wow, that's an amazing thing for the tiniest bit of extra effort on the outside. And I believe that goes through pretty much everything. Um, the, the water, you know, we're having all these water problems with the chemical runoff. Uh, and so people are like, oh, well, we can do X, Y, and Z, but they're still having, putting all these chemicals on. Right, right. We're not stopping and the problem like, well, at the source. It's like, well, what if we change some of this? And in, in, mm -hmm. in fact, one of the, the coolest things that happened early on is we farmed the Taliesin Farms land or around Taliesin where Frank Lloyd Wright's home and school was. And they'd had a, a you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was really into, uh, well, what we would now call organic mm -hmm. agriculture, but at the time there was no There such was thing. no term for it. But yes. he was into the rotation and self-sufficiency and getting things balanced. And they do these tours talking about this, and yet they had a corn and bean farmer out there oh, good. spraying yeah, and hydras, and it's just like, it, it's just this bad scene. And they were having problems with the county because they had so much runoff. Every time it rained, the, their road would wash out, and they'd have mud all over it, and the highway would get mud all over it, and it was a classic thing you see with a lot of long-term commodity farms. So they asked us to come in. Because uh, we do the organics, and it took us, you know, three years to convert to organic. And the first two years, Gary did nothing but grow cover crops mm -hmm. and till them back under. And by the second year, we had record rains in the area, but no washout. The mm -hmm. road washed out. The, the road literally washed out, but the field stayed in place. Right. Because so much topsoil and health had generated just in those two years of doing these kinds of systems that the soil stays in place and can absorb a lot more water and just gives you a lot greater resilience. Uh, and this is true in the drought side as well. We've seen the same thing happen when you go into areas and we get our biological system started. And again, it can be you know three to five years to really get it cooking along. When you have a drought year, there's so much more moisture in the soil that's able to be held because you have a lot 
thicker sponge, if you will, mm -hmm. that the plants can tap into that will have better yields than the commodity guys who are always water stressed mm -hmm. because they're, they're, their soils just aren't there right, to hold water. they can't retain the water. So there is a long-term benefit to it, and it is tapped in almost spiritually with treating everything as an ecosystem, including ourselves, mm -hmm. tapped into how this whole thing works. But given systems and the, the way of our world, it would only work if it can make money. And what they've shown is it actually makes money. So on that note, what's next for biological farming? Well, what they're doing now, and again, I'm peripherally involved. Um, hey, you're, as cl you're closer than I am. There so. you go. It's, well, from a deep inside source, we right. have the following information. It, no, it's what, what's happened is so organics, you know, started as a bit of survival, mostly here in the driftless area, where we had these very small farms, uh, and it was only really suitable for animal agriculture because the hills. Everybody had gone fence row to fence row corn and bean, and we have these poor guys in the driftless who are like, I can't do that. Right. I can't till. Right. So animal Tractor would tip over. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they're competing with yields in Illinois, and it's just a mess. So they had this small-scale animal agriculture, largely dairy and some vegetable production, and they needed to improve the value and show, hey, what we're doing is better. So they started mm -hmm. crop and or this organic movement, and that's now Organic Valley, Valley. and it's fantastic, brilliant, love them to death. Um, they've got, they chose to do a very large-scale Thing. And they, they really saved that whole region and that scale of farmer and blessed them for Yeah, it. not just here. I mean, they're all oh, over the country. Right, they expanded that model out. Yeah, and, and I sometimes think that um, that our, the folks like me been in organics forever have this tendency to eat our young because right. there's this, oh, organic valley's gotten too big and they're no good anymore. But the truth, in my view, is that I think we need to have a big player like that who is having an impact on the scale that they are in order Absolutely. to have the transformation we need. And they've been incredible in educating the consumer and educating their farmers. Absolutely. They're, they're, I really have a lot of respect for them. Um, they've, they've stayed true to their mission. And what has happened is not just eating their young, but the success they have now educated the consumer in spite of the USDA. I would right, say. I I would agree with that. Um, yes. So the consumers People defend demanded. the farm bill to me, and yeah. I'm like, the farm bill has done absolutely nothing yeah. to support organic agriculture. If anything, it's been a detriment. Right. They have this very competing tension within the USDA um, between the the basic policy of the commodity. It's a huge export, huge money maker in these rural areas. So. I mean, just right, revenue. Right, of course. So they're really pushing that, and they see, and I was told this directly by the Secretary of Agriculture, when you're promoting or organic, you're telling everyone else the other stuff's bad. <laughs> and how could you possibly promote your agriculture at the expense of others? Oh, it's so, uh, it's yeah, welcome to the, to the world that right. we are in right now. So Let's back politicize that everything, right. right? And it's that it's back to that concept of the fungible. Come on, they, right. They, as a policy, most of the stuff is perceived right. to be fungible. Get it. Um, so Organic Valley did this amazing thing. The consumers are demanding it. The, I mean, the demand is just unreal. I just read that mm -hmm. the growth of organics food consumption last year was like 14 percent. Oh, and that's probably low compared and that's to what probably it had low what, compared to what, but it's not, I was kind of concerned that everybody, they, all this, you know, thinking that somehow big is bad in organics and we don't like organics mm -hmm. anymore because they're somehow not as good as local. 
having said that, I think in some ways consumers are smarter. They're becoming smarter. They're like, they're, there's something different about this food, mm-hmm. and they actually care a lot about it. Well, they just they came out to study, like, poor Cheerios had this incredibly, like, 800% the glyphosate residue in it than you're oh supposed to God. have. It was an incredible thing. Cheerios, Cheerios that we all feed to our exactly. toddlers, right. right? So, I mean, there. yes, the it is hitting the point where the base knowledge is shocking. And that's why you see it in Costco and every mm-hmm. supermarket where it has its organic section and all that. What that's doing is driving the demand for a very high scale. Mm-hmm. It's what organic value used to be the only one who could provide through an right. aggregation system. Now you're getting 2,000, 5,000 cow organic dairies, right. which I'm not quite sure how it works given the forage requirements. But Right. Like they're, how they're many pushing, acres would you right. need to graze that many cows? So they're pushing the system crazy. to get to where supply demand are equal, which is what our system does, right or wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's how it works. So where biological farming is going is going and working with those folks mm-hmm. saying, you don't have a chemical cheat. You can't just buy off the commodity market and feed your cows because it doesn't exist. Right. Or if it does, you're buying questionable stuff from the East Eastern Bloc where you're going to get shut down in a hurry. So mm-hmm. there, there are all these tensions going on as it scales up. Mm-hmm. So the biological farming has proven itself to be a viable system for the largest commodity guys out there anyway, mm-hmm. commodity sales. Sure. And now you take it into specialty areas where people are scaling up. Mm-hmm. And that that's where we're seeing a lot of movement mm-hmm. and a lot of interest right now. Like, okay, we've proven it out at the organic valley scale, the, mm-hmm. you know, 100 to 200 cow dairy. Mm-hmm. Those have kind of stagnated and a lot of them are dropping away. And now we're getting to the 1,000 to 2,000 cow dairy and equivalent mm-hmm. in cropping. Mm-hmm. How do we translate this? And, th- and that's the, the push right now, which from a local food, from a, you know anybody who's really intense and quality and all mm-hmm. that, it's not where you want to be from Mm -hmm. philosophically this way, but from a system, Mm -hmm. how do we improve agriculture as a whole across the country? It's fantastic. Right. And that's where I have a little personal tension over. Right, I'm sure. This is great. If everyone was biological, Mm -hmm. it's like, if everyone's a superhero, then no one's special, you know, or whatever, however that thing. It's like, if everyone's doing it, it's great for the country, but Mm -hmm. now you don't have your point of differentiation. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's I think a, there are other ways to get a point of differentiation. Oh, of course there are. Yeah. But it's it's it, just one of those. That you're yeah. Like, oh. uh, this is where the the big is always bad thing gets um, a little crazy to me. Well, the so the one issue when I was at university here, there's a wonderful uh, professor teaching um, systems thinking, mm-hmm. and uh, and he taught actually a class called Plants and Man that was basically the interaction of people with agriculture and food and all it mm-hmm. just you know it blew your mind when you're a 19 right. year old sitting in this class you're like what what are you talking about but i remember sitting in his systems class and he talked about systems really can come down to being a you and if you are a very resilient system like your garden mm-hmm. or you know a small scale organic csa or whatever you have a very broad base so a lot of things can go on it can rock back and forth and you'll you'll get a product out but your efficiency level and your output level may be capped because you've got so much concentrated in, the, in the, the resiliency of it. As that system gets focused more and more on efficiency and output, 
it becomes almost like an eye. If people can envision, instead of a really broad U, it's it's a very narrow parallel line, very tiny base. Mm-hmm. So incredibly efficient. But if you get off that base, if something rocks it, it's crashing, and that mm-hmm. system is broken. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we are with a lot of our systems: is that we have created, coming out of World War II and into the you know this decade, have really done an amazing job with our machines and our systems and now our computers and all to get absolute maximum efficiency. And you and I were talking about this before. What is the right scale? Right, right. Get that thing nailed down, dial it in, run it through, make money, great. But if there's a shock to the system, climate change, mm-hmm. uh, there is a drought, there is extra water one year, um, there is a disease that wipes out a certain type of seed, um, in, a swarm of locusts comes through that is you know, developed an immunity to whatever pesticide is coming, all of a sudden, it's all gone. It's all gone. And now what do you do? Yeah, I was in a meeting with somebody who is a very top plant scientist who works with people like Monsanto, who told me privately that we're not moving fast enough to deal with the um, the change, climate change and um, just the variability of agricultural systems right now. That right. resilience has to become the key factor in developing technologies, quote-unquote technologies, for agriculture because of exactly what you're talking about. Right. So just think of what he yeah. told you. Yeah. It's about Actually, technology. Actually, it was a she. She. I'm sorry. That's okay. So, so take that. And that, that's, that was a lesson I learned in grad school, by the way, that yeah. shocked me. It took me like two years to figure out what I was being told, but I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, that whole thing. So we need to improve our technology to keep up with climate change mm-hmm. is keeping that system tight and narrow mm-hmm. and adding, oh, this is the problem we have. Let's add this technology. Let's add that technology right, right. versus and the biological system saying, we don't know. Right. And this is a mess. But you know what? There are a billion years of evolution in this world, and we've only been right. non-organic for 60. Right. So maybe we should just kind of chill out and create a system at the so, base that yeah. can So what was really interesting about this is this is a um, person who is a top scientist who is used to talking about, um, you know, sort of gene splicing kind of, you know, to do that mm-hmm. kind of incremental sure. change you're talking about. And she, say, she was saying um, in order to get resilience, we have to completely rethink how we're doing this. That's right. Yeah. Now, if you are Monsanto, or Cargill, or any of those, you don't make your money on resilience. I know. You I make get your it. money on the new technology and I pushing get it. that. Th- and that's, that's one of the things that, again, this is a local food decision. Right. Uh, the consumer decision mm-hmm. is that by your step to step act, like mm-hmm. buying the local coffee versus the chain, you are adding resilience to the system just Absolutely. through where you spend your money. Yeah. Absolutely. To your own garden. You're asking, Mm -hmm. well, what can you do? Well, you can go to your local garden store and buy the standard seed packets. Mm -hmm. Or I think it was at Seeds of Change started doing all these heirloom varieties. Mm -hmm. There's uh, somebody out here. Seed Savers Exchange. Seed Savers Exchange. I mean, there are these. You can get your carrot. You can get your tomato because that's all you're thinking. I want a tomato. But buy one of these funky varieties. Mm -hmm. And then maybe even, you know, try to save your seeds for the next year. But that may be a step too far. I get it. But mm-hmm. these people are doing it for us. But they need an income stream themselves. Mm-hmm. So if you're using them and buying heirlooms, who cares if you get one tomato instead of 20? I mean, it's like you're still having the experience of the tomato. And if it fails, oh, well. But look what you've done. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the kind of thing that all of this, and this gets back to the resilience, it can't be a single big system that solves anything. It's each of the 7 billion of us or each of the 350 million mm -hmm. in the United States making choices day to day that create a resilient, healthy system, not just, I need to make some more money today. Is there any movement toward having a consumer label for biological farming systems related products? That was so the consumer yeah. would know. Again, that gets back to the education of the consumer. I had that early on in our cheeses, and it became one of 12 symbols we could put out. Right, there. I get it. And it was one of those what's this? Right, there's gluten free and just, there's organic right. and all of that. I don't know if you've even seen the organic now. Half time they'll have the organic bug, and they'll also have verified non-GMO. Right. I know. It's like totally redundant. Right. But yeah. for the consumer, they're like, oh, I get it. I don't want GMO. Right. Oh, yeah, I'll buy organic. They don't right. realize they mean the one the subsumed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it so is that was the problem with the biological. Yeah, yeah. It is a complicated thing. It's just that I, I, I don't know how much, how is the consumer going to know the difference? And if we want the consumer right. to know the difference, you know, if we want people mm -hmm. to vote with their feet, how do they do that? Right. Well, that's where the local and, and just paying attention. So, I mean, starting organic. Local, if you great. pay attention. If you pay Remember, attention. Remember, I can get the most chemically laden that's tomato right. grown right outside of, yeah. That's right. Oh, at absolutely. At a farmer's market. But that's in, the, in you can ask locally. the question. Mm -hmm. You ask that question. Yeah, and that's but you a, have to ask the question so is my point. for empowering the consumer, and people push back on this because they're, oh, so busy or so this. It's like start cooking, mm -hmm. period. I don't care if you start on the weekend and then move on or learn how to do these things, but cook. Because once you start cooking, then you start paying attention to differences in flavors and differences in quality of ingredient, and then that leads you to where you're shopping, and you no longer say, oh, I just need a box from whatever. It's mm -hmm. like wait, where did this come from? And what's this made of? And, and those simple steps, just cooking and paying attention will open up all these avenues, including better resiliency and economics at home. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it, again, as a society, we've been trained cooking is bad. I heard a thing about Christmas dinner, my way in one of the big grocery stores. Oh, let us do all your holiday cooking for you. That way right, you can spend right. more time with what's important. Right. And I'm like, for me, the most, honestly, the most, most important, important thing is with cooking. my family cooking yeah. and eating that meal together. I know. Isn't it's that, not just it's just awful, right? I was, I oh, flabbergasted. You want to cry. Oh my goodness. Anyway. So yes, that's the, the Otter Creek and the biological farming side of things. And it, it was really, you have this base and it was a mission-based concept. It was very successful. Um, you're right. We could probably reintroduce it today. Um, it's just reinventing that wheel and Oh, all, but it's, yeah. and, and, you know, the energy at the farm with, um, and I, I work with people on grants, uh, value-added producer grants and things, trying to get their businesses going on the farm. And they're always saying, the cheese is the answer, and this is the answer. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, if you're a farm, you want to farm. Actually, the farm, farm is, the, is answer. the answer. Right. Yeah. So what's your farm gate? Yeah. How do you protect that? Right. And then the tool can be some, one of these products. But if you're a cheesemaker, like our friend Bill Anderson, he is a cheesemaker. Right. He's all about the cheese. Right. The milk is an input for him, mm -hmm. but he's not the farmer. He's not there trying to preserve a farm gate price right. by making a cheese. He's there, no, I'm making an awesome cheese. Right. I'll pay the farmer more because I get quality milk, but it's, you know, the push right. and pull is different. Right. If right. you're a farmer and you got your, figure out how to make your money on the farm, get it maximized and have a nice life. Don't stress out with doing all this extra marketing unless it's necessary to preserve that farm mm -hmm. gate. 
That's that's the and big thing. And if it makes sense through. for people, some people yeah. are just not going to ever be the right, right temperament or have the right knowledge base or whatever to be. That's right. Even talking to consumers. Well, and that's where I always joked about when I came on. It's uh, you know they have their kids all involved in the agriculture. I married into the family, so like, oh, we don't trust you with the factory or the with tractor. The farm, yeah. So we're going to send you out to do the marketing. Uh, right. I'm like, right. all right, I can all do right. that. I get it. <laughs> well, they made the right choice, probably. I, so, I don't yeah. know whether you could drive a tractor or not, but I think they made the right choice about talking to people. Yeah. That's for sure. That was fun. All right, so let's um, turn to Black Earth Meats. I yeah. think the story of Black Earth Meats is incredibly useful for people because people all over the country want to start small-scale slaughter facilities in particular. Right. Um, we actually have a lot of really small ones here. They're fewer around the country. Right. Um, but they're incredibly difficult to make work. And so hearing your story, I think, can be super helpful to other people. Yeah. So the when I was out marketing the cheese, I saw this huge demand for local and organic meats. Now, this is before grass-fed was even a term. Right. So, but it was the idea of people wanted natural meats, smaller scale kind of stuff. And it, it just, it wasn't out there. And I, there, here in Madison, you had a few restaurants bringing in animals from local farmers, and they had a, so some idea that you could do local meat. But you had to be really, really good, either as the farmer on your marketing or the restaurant to bring in meat that satisfied. I mean, not only the quality, but the consistency throughout and be able to utilize that animal. So I always remind people, you have a 1,400 pound animal for a beef walking in the door and the tenderloin is four and a half pounds. <laughs> and there's only one. And there's only, well, there are two. They actually two. split them, okay, but it's on yeah. either side, but either side of the spine there. But it's, you have this very small amount that people consider the premier steak. So they said, oh, I'd love to do local. I want, you know, a case of tenderloins a week. Right. And it's like, well, that's going to be 10 animals mm-hmm. to die along with 14,000 pounds of animal <laughs> that's not used so you can right. have your case of tenderloin. Right. So that, that was a sense of scale. So there's this demand for more people to have the local and the organic meats coming through, and no one was really satisfying it at all. Now, there are lots of butcher shops around, uh, but none of them were doing organic. Uh, here in Wisconsin, there are a lot of but- these small-scale shops that are very much legacy shops. Well, yeah, they're mostly for um, deer hunting, right? The, yeah. the small-scale slaughter. In fact, anyway. what, what you see building, there are some new ones still opening up, but it's usually deer hunters who start right. helping their friends in their garage, and mm-hmm. then that scales up, and they're like, oh, I can make a business of it, and then they get a facility to do deer processing. Um, the problem <laughs> is the deer season six weeks long, I, and they're trying to extend it some, but it's right. basically you have... Talk about a seasonal business. Highly seasonal, and you need skilled people to come in. They always right. start out like, oh, me and a couple buddies, this will be great, but all of a sudden it's like, no, I need my couple buddies here for three weeks straight or six weeks straight. They got their other jobs, and we can't do it just at night. And then you have this infrastructure you've built. So whether it's a converted shed or a full-on you know, stainless steel facility, once you get outside of deer processing, which is this kind of gray area of processing, you need to f- 
hit state or federal standards, which means a lot of stainless steel. Mm-hmm. You've got HACCP plans, which are highly complex documents you then have to follow. People forget that. Right. They'll come up with, follow. oh, I pulled this off the web. I got my HACCP plan. It's like, and you hey. have to document yeah. that steps That's along right. the way, right? Key paperwork. Absolutely. Every right. day. Record keeping. That's yes. what happened uh, to our friend with um, Blue Marble, who's doing right. the fluid milk. He just got overwhelmed and couldn't keep up with the paperwork. And you miss a couple days of signatures. They don't have proof your stuff's good, and they pull it right, back. Right, Shut so, the whole thing down. So it's it's really um, – that's where a lot of people complain about the regulation of mm-hmm. any of this stuff. Um, and it, it is a burden if you're trying to just do the Wisconsin get her done. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is a burden. Like, why can't I just get to the end point? That's where everybody wants. It's like, well, because now you're playing in a system – that A, doesn't trust anyone and can't trust mm-hmm. anyone because the corners are cut. And and B, if they can't read it, mm-hmm. it doesn't count. Right. Because they can't watch right. all the time. Right. And my thing about food safety is always that you have to take it seriously because people do die. We have had small farmstead cheese plants in this state in the last 10 years. Somebody died of listeria. We had, I ran a, t- a company that made 20 million pounds of cheese a year. We didn't have listeria in our product, but we were part of a re- broader recall from, it, I mean, it can happen to anyone, right? right? And so we do need this. It's important. Yeah, and this, the scary part with, I think it's listeria in particular, is it's an early colonist. So if you have a super clean sanitary facility, mm-hmm. listeria can be one of the first ones to come in. Oh, yeah. And so... It, you, you don't see it. Like some of the other stuff you can see, like, ooh, it's kind of skanky in here. Yeah, no, you, know, you don't see it. It'll be in a floor drain. Right. And it won't even be in the facility. It'll be in the drain underneath right. the floor. Yeah, it's they're, nasty they're stuff. Pro- now, this is one of those tension points that I got into with black earth meats. The Europeans are much more, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Tolerant. Tolerant, thank you. And they're more attuned to the whole microbiology of things. Mm-hmm. So they will they have allow... They cheeses that right. stink, They right? have cheeses that stink. The meat, they will clean the meat and just let them hang and do nothing to them. Right. And there's this sense that, A, everyone's going to cook. Right. They're going to bring things to them. They have a trust in the people on the, the, the back end to take mm-hmm. care of things. And secondary, they're like, well, good microbes will outcompete the bad macro- microbes. Mm-hmm. And they kind of balance it through that way. In the United States, we don't trust our people will cook or cook Probably thoroughly. Probably for good reason. Probably for good reason. And there's this sense, and I think it comes out of the polio days with the milk going into the urban areas and bad conditions and all, but we have a basically a sterilization policy. Mm-hmm. So this is one that really freaked me out is I went to – so we were extremely good at Black Earth Meats. I, I upgraded us. We've jumped ahead a little bit here, but I upgraded us to – uh, not only full HACCP plan at the federal level, but had all these third-party audience, audi- audits. third-party audits. Yeah. And, and I had a full-time USDA HACCP. And we were USDA. Certified. So, so there's an inspector there Inspector every there every day, checking all our paperwork every day. And just, just we got to back up we gotta really back up. far here because yeah. um, you slaughtered there as well as cut meat, correct? Right. And you had so, a retail outlet. Yeah. So... I saw this demand for the need for local meats. We had organic beef and organic pork we were growing on the farm. From Otter Creek, From Otter yes. Creek Farm. And the original idea is that we would sell the pork through a little 
shop out in Lone Rock, and it, it just didn't go well for many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had these incredible animals. Mm-hmm. And I tried to figure out how do I get this through the system? And the idea of selling a little bit here and a little bit there and running around with the truck just was not appealing when you're dealing with a couple animals. It's it's tough. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of paperwork Never and hustle. Never mind beef. Yeah. Right. Right. And then with the – and processing gets more – it just becomes very problematic on a bunch of levels. Um, and the, a lot of farmers do the custom processing where they mm-hmm. sell to their neighbors or somebody else and people buy. And that, that, that can be And they quite slaughter viable. on the farm then. Or, or even one of these small butcher shops mm-hmm. you can sign and they, they come in. But, again, it's a lot of marketing, web page stuff, matching it all up. And it, it does a lot of headache for very little mm-hmm. benefit. When, again, we're part of a fairly large farm here. Right. So – I went in and talked to Tim Metcalf at Metcalf's Market. That was, uh, anyone not in this area, it's the cutting-edge grocery store in Madison. Mm-hmm. And it's one part looks like a traditional grocery store, but in the other part, it's it blows your mind. It's probably bigger than Whole Foods as far as the produce it offers. And he, he was faced with a decision. Uh, he had Whole Foods trying to move in next door to him. And they were debating. Right, literally next literally door. Literally next door yes. to him. And they were debating when this was happening whether to go the cheap commodity route where they go for the low price leader and they're fighting with uh, the giant grocery stores around with, at the time, just two stores. Or do they go to the high end and really improve their customer service and their offerings and cater? And he was going back and forth. And with Whole Foods moving in next door, it's t- a terrifying thing for a grocer. I walk in the door and I give him a quick presentation and offer him something that even Whole Foods couldn't do, which is I'm going to bring you a beef from 44 miles away. Mm-hmm. And you can use our name. We can trumpet it. It'll be limited exclusivity because no one else can do this. And Whole Foods can never do this because they have to play. Go you know, through a whole so system. many people in right. the system and uh, all these requirements and just the volume they mm-hmm. have where he's got an existing meat department. Mm-hmm. He just needs to bring in one beef. And he can trumpet mm-hmm. this. So we set up a deal where they would buy the beef mm-hmm. on four hooves or hanging or whatever. And it would go through the local processor and they would receive it as the carcass. And he had a skilled butchers who would then break it down. I think it would get to them in primals, which are the big puzzle pieces. And they were buying, I think, one beef and two hogs every week. Mm-hmm. And the trick for us was to make sure we had that one beef and two hogs every week set up for them. So there's very much a partnership form. And again, this is what we were talking before about the cheese. Is a lot of it is finding the right scale and the right partnership. So they were willing to support us and say, we're going to commit to this. And by us at this point, was it Otter Creek? That's, that's still Otter Creek. Yeah. And so we, we basically partnered with each other. So we knew we could grow and had a market for it. And then we had the struggle of making sure the hogs didn't all get to be slaughter weight on the same week. I mean, there is, sure. it's tricky, right. uh, but it worked great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the butcher we were using come February or March called me one day and said, do you have any animals to come in, any extra animals or any mm-hmm. animals come in this week? And I'm like, well, no. He's like, well, I've only got two hogs scheduled for the whole week. My oh, guys boy. have nothing to do. I'm like, oh, boy. So what happened with him and happened with many of the small shops around they have a cadre, so in this case, there are three full-time, three part-time employees. 
who were absolutely crazy full go for deer hunting season mm-hmm. and pretty busy for October, November, December, January, mm-hmm. somewhat. There's about four months where the fall harvest is happening. That's a traditional time. Just works again with and people eat more. People right? eat more. Yeah. It's you know it's people are raising these animals on the farm. They're heading into winter. They don't have to pay for feed or put up mm-hmm. feed. They've had them just kind of out in the pasture or whatever, and so they either send them through as custom processing for someone else or for themselves. So there's a nice little business in the fall harvest there. Well, once that runs out in January or February, you have almost nothing to do until come around September October. And so yet you've got these employees who, if you don't give them a job, they go somewhere else, and then you don't have them for the deer season. So it's this very much feast or famine thing. And usually the the cash, the mm-hmm. literal cash that comes through on deer hunting season and just the amount of book of business right there keeps everybody afloat. Mm-hmm. CWD hit, chronic wasting disease hit, and the deer herd dropped dramatically when people could process, how they could process dropped. So the business in the deer went from, I think they're doing between 800 and 1300 a season to two to 300. Right. I mean, it's $80,000 right, right there right. gone. gone. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, I don't, without casting aspersions, largely cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it was, it, that was everything. Mm-hmm. And now they had sausage making and then, you know, ancillary mm-hmm. sales. And that happened throughout Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Lots of places closed during this time. And this guy's got Southwestern Wisconsin. Yeah. And so he needed, he was, he had to get out. So he was getting out. And I'm saying, you were the last processor in Dane County, mm-hmm. uh, which those, not, not, that's where Madison is. It is this burgeoning urban population, very tied in with local foods and organics, and is really the connector from the rural area coming into the urban, the rural to urban right there is happening. And so... We'd been using them already, and I had a deal with a local butcher shop that needed a certain amount of beef and pork coming through. So between that and the Metcalf's market deal, we thought we had the setup to make this thing start and cash flow from day one. And the whole idea was to be that connector from the people who are trying to do this marketing, going into the city, and create an aggregation system where you can use lots of different farms under a common brand to start hitting the, the, gro- the restaurants. The first thing that happened is the butcher shop we were using, or that we're partnered with, didn't know their own throughput. So mm. what they had promised they needed, they'd actually only calculated based on tenderloin. Oh, no. right. So right. within, I think we had... 18 beef a week coming through for them, Uh-oh. or maybe it was eight beef. It was eight beef a week and 10 hogs. Or within three weeks, the tenderloins were gone and the freezer was full. Full, right. And so there was this immediate panic of like, okay, that didn't work. You know, now, <laughs> now, <laughs> now what do we do? Grind everything up and uh, sell a lot of hamburger. Yeah, it was it was ugly. And then there, you have the hamburger issue of like, how do you move all this? And to get into the systems, whether it's the university or the hospital and all, you're either going through a distributor that has certain insurance requirements and all, or you have to create yourself as a distributor with certain insurance requirements. All of that requires or strongly lean towards federal inspection. So we jumped Mm -hmm. up to federal, which Mm -hmm. was a challenge, but we did. Um, How long did it take you to get USDA certified? I think six months. That's like record time compared to most of the people I work with. Yeah, well, we had the state inspection, and it was... um, 
you know, around here there's, and, and I think actually nationally people go on the extension services and can basically print out something that says HACCP plan. Mm-hmm. And as long as they fill in certain basic things, the state's like, all right, mm-hmm. we're doing enough, we're okay. At least it used to be that way. But to go federal, they actually send it through their microbiology PhDs mm-hmm. who pick it apart and mm-hmm. make sure you know what you're doing. Right. And so, you know, I... On this one, you know, I, was, I, I came out of being a lawyer, and so I know if you want to get something done, you spend the money to get the right person in. So I brought someone in who had run a federal plant and done a couple of these federal yeah, plants. Yeah, and, and if you don't do going. that, it'll take years to get through. Right, and that happened. So we had the same problem at the sausage plant mm-hmm. out in uh, Gorm and um, Lone Rock that we had inherited as part of this process. We were trying to make that a really high-end production facility, and it took us a year and a half to get the federal right. inspection, inspection there because we yeah. didn't have that ex- expertise and couldn't really find it at the mm-hmm. time, um, and that was a struggle. Mm-hmm. But on the, the slaughter side, we, we got that going pretty quickly, um, and and from that, and it wasn't even the intention. The intention was now we could go across the border, mm-hmm. and that was great, mm-hmm. but we started attracting clients who needed a small custom operation. Mm-hmm that could do a certain quality work and then go back to their distribution network. To get into UW hospitals, you had to use, at the time, one of the distributors. They couldn't bring into their shop unless it was federal because they have to cross state lines. Right. Even if one of their trucks goes across right. state line and back, if they get caught, they get shut down. Right. So you start hitting these systems that require higher and higher levels, um, just like the insurance. You know, when I took over, I think the insurance was 250000 liability. You know, something mm-hmm. really minor. As right. soon as you start selling to some of these, it started out two as million. a $2 million, yeah. And then it went to $5 million. Yeah. And last time I saw it was a $10 million yeah. policy, which is part of the system starts pushing against. Mm-hmm. And all they need is one larger person to one come in and say, oh, sick. look, we offer $10 million in liability. And they go, oh, that's a great idea. We should make that our mm-hmm. standard. And then all of a sudden, everybody has to play at that level. And it's just, it's one of the games of playing in the system. So you had three different, you you had, I don't know if you call it product lines, but you had organic, you had grass-fed, and you called it, I think it was Grandpa's Way. Was that what you called it? So So the aggregation system we developed. So after the the one butcher shop crashed and burned and left us kind of high High and dry, dry, uh, we had to figure out how to move all this meat that, was coming through and committed in a large part from our farm. And the way you do it is you find a bunch of restaurants Mm -hmm. because they can move a lot of volume. The restaurants struggle uh, with the consistency and the throughput and making sure it comes in right. So I remember early on talking to, I think it was a guy at Balufi's, um, who was willing to bring in hamburger and pay a premium for it. But he's like, you know, but I've had trouble for, and when I say, you know, I need my burger, I need my burger. And I'm a high volume guy. Mm -hmm. You better not ever short me. And I'm all geared up like, okay, okay, yep, I think we can handle it. He said, yeah, I need 150 pounds a week. Yeah, And, and I almost like, fell off my chair. Right. Like that's like nothing, not even one animal. And, right. But he'd been having trouble dealing with small even, farmers yeah. bringing that in. Mm-hmm. On a consistent on basis. On a consistent basis. Yeah. So that's where I was trying to deal with the university and the hospitals. And, and we were definitely ahead of our time on that. Right. Now they're saying, yes, we need clean meat. Right. Know, antibiotic free yep. and hormone free. But at the time it was all education. But from that, we ended up with almost 200 restaurants in Madison, Milwaukee, and Chicago that we were directly selling to or Mm -hmm. or through a couple of distributors. 
um, because we were able to aggregate all these small farmers who may not have been grass-fed, they may not have been organic, some were, some weren't, Mm -hmm. but they were all clean, Mm antibiotic-free, no hormones, and letting them out on pasture. And that's where we developed a brand called Grandpa's Way, Mm -hmm. which was basically, is this something your grandfather would have recognized? Mm -hmm. And it just, it's that little bit of nostalgia. Yeah. Did you have somebody at the farm? Like, did you know that if, you know, did you trust a farmer when he said, oh, yeah, we put those cows out? Or did you actually have somebody going to the farm? We knew our farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't do the on-farm inspection. I had, when it got to the point where I didn't personally know them, Mm -hmm. um, I had a guy who had a checklist Mm -hmm. that would go around. But we made them all sign affidavits Mm -hmm. of what was their farming practice was. And again, this is a little bit the, the local versus an industrial model. At some point, you know people are going to cut corners. Mm-hmm. So if you know them and can talk to them directly, mm-hmm. they can still lie to you, but that's a stretch. It's harder to lie. It's harder to lie face-to-face, yeah. and you say this is mm-hmm. what's important. When all of a sudden you're going through a buyer and the buyer to a buying station and a buying station, when it goes up the chain, eh, mm-hmm. you know, slip something by, okay, that's the way it but goes. Did somebody go to the farm ever? The, yeah. Well, so when we were starting out, like I said, we knew all the farmers. I mean, right. they're our neighbors and right. like that. When it got to the next level and I actually had a buyer out there, mm-hmm. he was going to the farm to pick them up. Mm-hmm. So we oh, had, okay. Yeah. So he was he was there to right. see what That's was That's why I said he had on. his checklist yeah. to make sure. Right. Now, whether they throw – I remember at one point we saw um, a guy who was grass-fed, actually, um, came in, and he was throwing growth hormone patches on him. And you can mm-hmm. see it's literally a patch they throw yeah. on the shoulder. And – under grass-fed rules, there's nothing against it. Mm-hmm. Nothing against antibiotics right. in there. And it's one of the weird things people About don't understand. It's yeah. like, it, all it means is they're fed the grass. It doesn't mean all these other, other things. things. Yes. So it's one of the confusions in the marketplace. But So that just meant we had a conversation right. and said, we're not going to buy this anymore until X, Y, Z. And then you get the grump grump. They're going to take two extra months to grow. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you're like... Good. Sorry. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the way we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that was, it's a scale thing where you, if we, it didn't go through our buyers on the farm, they're coming to us and you have the convert, they sign in and they're signing affidavits and you have a conversation. And what was very interesting is you, you tell very quickly from the animals coming in, if they were on pasture or not, the way they look, the way they smell, oh, sure. the way their fat is, all these things, you, my guys room in the back, they'd shape, never experienced it. And they're like, size. oh my gosh, I, this is absolutely grass-fed. Mm-hmm. And we had the guy, the grass-fed from one of the co-ops coming in, we're like, we're all grass-fed and all that. You know, they're cutting up and corn spills out of the room. And you're like, oh, no, got right. into the patch of corn grass. You know, right. it's like, okay. Right, yeah. You know, so it's, it's interesting um, but I think I think what um, is interesting about this is in order to make these things work, I think transparency across right. the supply chain is a necessity. It is. You have to have that. That's what I always talked about. It's the the equivalent of line of sight. Mm-hmm. That's what if the the consumer themselves can't know the farm, and they can't. That's too mm-hmm. much to ask anybody. They have to have a trusted pathway. And that's what organic's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That's what Whole Foods was all about at mm-hmm. first. I don't know if they still are, but I mean, they're, that's what these pathways, the, the co-ops certainly try that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as they get busier and busier and the systems get more complex, you just can't, you can't do it. It's hard. It's, it's just, hard. It's like the, yeah. the amount of expense and overseeing. So there's definitely a size and a scale that you can be to to maintain that. But mm-hmm. 
we were right on the cusp of, then all of a sudden you start having to put in draconian systems. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.